Well, church, how's your health? I mean, that's the question we've been asking. And I have to admit, I, I, I'm loving this series. I'm loving the, the work that, uh, that we have a chance to do in preparing for it. Uh, for the past few weeks, we've been working on this teaching series. We've called it Vital Signs. And we're looking at indicators of health or, or lack of health in a few key areas of our lives. Last week, we looked at relationships. And we used a, a key text from the book of Colossians. And then two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, we had that closure week, right? We, we were in the book of Acts at some of the signs of spiritual health. This morning is the last. This was just a little mini-series. It is the last of those benchmarks, and we're going to be looking at financial health. Everybody in the church, except this section, because Ava Grace Lee is here at church for the first time. This is Sheldon's granddaughter, so you all have permission not to pay attention. But the rest of you, we're going to be looking at financial health. And um, in doing that, I realize that, that it's a hard conversation. It's probably hard everywhere, but it's hard when I started thinking about this place that we live, I mean, this area of the world. Part of what is so challenging about living in the GTA with its financial hub and its corporate offices and its fancy stores and its affluent homes I was out cycling this week, and I cycled down Mississauga Road to Dalton Drive. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I mean, this is the stuff of Hollywood mansions. It, it's, it's, I thought I had entered Wonderland or something. But you can start to feel, living in this area of the world, that everybody has their financial house in order except me. Uh, that everybody understands how the economy works except me, that everybody has their house paid off except me, that everybody can afford their lifestyle, everybody knows what their number is for retirement except me, and me, and maybe a few others. We, we live with this sense of financial pressure. The angst around money is just crazy. I mean, I, I saw a survey not too long ago that said that in the GTA, the average person feels that to be well off, you have to have $2.5 million. That's insane. <laughs> so what I want to do to begin the message is just kind of level the playing field. And I'm going to ask you, if you've ever been worried about money at all in your life, just to raise your hand, but don't don't do it yet. Oh, you, e- you eager folks. Because <laughs> I'm going to run through some categories. <laughs> uh, let me go through the categories and still see if you feel that way, if you, if you raise your hand at the end. If you've ever worried about savings, if you've ever wondered, I don't know whether I've saved enough, or I don't know how much I've saved, or I haven't saved anything at all. Okay? If you've ever worried about retirement, I-, I don't know what the number is I ought to be working towards, or boy, I should have started sooner. If you've ever worried because you've blown your budget, or you've never blown your budget because you've never had a budget to blow. (laughs) If you've ever worried because as you think about your spiritual life in the area of generosity and giving, you've never tithed before, and you're not sure maybe what God thinks of the lifestyle that many of us live, given all the poverty in the world, and, and you listen when Jesus says things that, Like, whatever you've done for the least of these in the world, it's like you've done it for me. And when you haven't done anything at all for the least of these, it's like you haven't done anything for me. 
if you've ever worried and you have kids that I'm not sure that I've taught them well enough about money. I don't know that I've modeled a healthy financial life well enough. I, I don't know that they're going to do well in this area. If you've ever worried because you're not in a house yet, and now in this real estate market where things are going up and up and up, it just feels like that's never going to happen. Or if you've ever worried because you are in a house or you were in a house and housing prices were not going up and up and up and you had to get out. If you've ever worried about the economy as a whole or the stock market, if you've ever worried that if the wrong candidate were one day to get into office, it would be catastrophic for you, or maybe you've worried that none of the candidates are the right candidates and we're all in trouble. But if here it is. If you've ever worried about finances in any way, would you just raise your hands right now? There we are. This, this financial anxiety that so many people feel I really want for for the next half hour or so, I want this to feel like a place where where at least we can be real about about where we are. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to imagine that you're someplace that you're not. So to remove all the shame that's here, I'm going to ask you to do this. Will you just turn to the person sitting next to you right now, you can choose which side, and say to them, this message is for me. Okay. This message is for me, okay? Okay. Now, right now, the person next to you is feeling a little bit rejected. They're a little excluded. So you're going to turn to the person on the other side and say to them, you might have to lean across the aisle way, uh, this message may be for me, but maybe there's something in there for you too. Okay? You say that? Yeah. Now, Here's what I hope you know and, and what I hope that we can claim together. I don't think it's God's desire for people to live under the weight of that kind of financial anxiety and pressure. Not just that. I, I actually think God wants you to be a fabulous, a, a tremendous manager of your finances. And I recognize that often when when we picture the church talking about money, all that gets talked about is giving. Will you, will you give to us, we need this, give us and we'll send you a holy towel or some holy whatever. But, but actually, all of your financial life matters to God. Uh, the whole thing. If you're, if you're a Bible person, maybe you'll know this passage. It's a chapter in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs. And it talks in the most glowing, endearing terms about a woman of great character. And one of the things that's striking about the portrait of this woman, it, it praises in particular her financial leadership, her financial abilities. This is what the writer says, part of it. Proverbs 31, around verse 16. It says, she provides food for her family. And she provides portions for all her female employees. And then she considers a field. And she buys it out of the earnings that she has. And then she plants a vineyard. She sees that her trading, her her business is profitable. And so she opens up her arms to the poor. She extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, it goes on to say, I wonder where it was snowing back. But when it snows, she has no fear for her household. Listen, I, I want to tell you, I... 
I married a woman like this. The, the, the only difference is that when it snows for Karina, she just she's likely to pull on her snow pants and go out on the front lawn and make snow angels with the kids. Today, what I'd like to do is walk through four of the vital signs of financial health. Really basic stuff. I mean, this is, this is 101. Those of you who are of an accounting background, who work in finance, uh, this is training wheels time. This is not 401 or 201. And, and I know I, I get it. We, we live in the most financially sophisticated area of the world among a very financially literate generation. And you know this stuff, so you don't need to hear it from me, especially from me. I get it. But maybe there's somebody in your life that does need to hear it. Maybe there's somebody that you care for or that cares about you. Maybe they're in the middle of a mess. Maybe it's even a little bit about you. And I want to confess that I've never really preached a message quite this way before. Just about basic financial wisdom based on some of the teachings of Scripture. And the Scriptures are filled with it. To help make it personal, what we've done is we've included, as we have for the past few weeks, in the back of your program, uh, a little grid. If you want to pull that out right now, you can have a look there. That's the, the four benchmarks that we're going to look at at financial health. And as we're looking at those, maybe you want to be thinking about your own financial life. And let me encourage you, as you're doing that, if you're married, uh, talk to the person that you're married to, because you're in this thing together. If you're not, maybe you want to talk to a really good friend about it. A lot of people get into trouble financially because they're never really honest with themselves. They're never honest before God. They're never honest when they stand in front of the mirror. That's why having somebody else who's a source of of accountability, who can be a, a, a true reflection of you, is important in doing this. All right, here we go. The first of the signs of financial vitality, a a realistic budget. You live within the framework of a realistic budget. And there is actually, there's a lot more in the Bible about this than you might think. The book of Proverbs, which is filled with financial wisdom. In chapter 24, the writer puts it this way. He says, put your outdoor work in order. Get your fields ready. And then after that, Build your house. Two categories, uh, two sequences. Outdoor work, fields ready first, and then build your house. And here's the idea behind the passage. I told you this is 101, so here it is. Financially, there are only two directions in which money can flow. Money can flow towards you, that's income. Money can flow away from you, that's expense. It's deep stuff, I know. The more money is flowing towards you, if more is flowing towards you than is flowing away from you, then you're probably in good shape. If more is flowing away from you than is flowing towards you, chances are you're in trouble. Now, in the ancient world, and here's where it gets interesting, this is an agricultural economy. They grew crops. Those are crops they could eat, they could sell. Crops were income producing. The fields meant there's revenue coming towards you. Houses were income consuming means there is money flowing away from you. A field in the ancient world was an asset. A house in the ancient world was a liability. Here's a question. In our world, what's a house today? An asset or a liability? Hmm. 
There's a guy named Robert Schiller. He's a Yale economist. He actually won the Nobel Prize for his work a few years back. From what I understand, he is the leading researcher on this question. And as he did his research, this was the, the key thought that he had. And he posed it in the form of a question. I'll give it to you. From 1890 to 2012, that's his research pool. From 1890 to 2012, adjusted for inflation, how much did housing prices rise? That's a 122-year span, adjusted for inflation, testing financial literacy. So turn to the person next to you and just whisper your number. How much adjusted for inflation have housing values increased over the past 122 years? All right. And again, this is Robert Schiller. This is not me. I have no clue. Zero percent. Zero percent. Adjusting for inflation, it hasn't gone up at all. And why I found that so fascinating is because we live in this really weird time in such a strange place in the world where housing prices have skyrocketed in a way that's almost incomprehensible. And there can be this idea that, that the house is a golden ticket. If I, could, if I could just get my foot in the real estate market, I'll never have to worry about money again. I can blow off budgets. I mean, if I, if I just get the house, that's it. Some of us are old enough to remember what it was like to own a house 2008. It's not that long ago. Anybody remember 2008? Again, Robert Schiller, this is amazing. Between 2007 and 2011, the value of North American homes, Canada and the U.S., fell $7 trillion. Because there's all kinds of lending institutions that are more than willing to offer risky loans in order to buy a piece of that puzzle or that pie, it was the financially marginalized, under-resourced people who got crushed Why say all this? I think that, that a lot of times, particularly young people, they place themselves under unbelievable pressure because there's this idea that, man, if I can just get into a house, that's it. That's, that's the golden ticket. And I want to say that in a lot of times, it, it just doesn't work that way. And I know this is all really basic and you don't need this, but there is no substitute Real estate, owning property is is no substitute for a realistic budget. Get your fields ready first. And then, after you've figured out what your income is, then maybe consider a house. Jesus was really familiar with this. Let me give you the story that he tells. Luke chapter 14, verse 28. It says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Very common practice. You had a field, you built a watchtower in the middle of the field, so you could, you could scope the edges of your property. He says, if you want to build a tower, won't you sit down first and estimate the cost? You want to see if you have enough money to complete it. If you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build, but they weren't able to finish. Now, that was a common thing in Jesus' day. 
and it was folly. And Jesus goes on to apply that to the idea of discipleship, to following him. But don't miss the fact that this is just basic financial wisdom. You figure out what your income is, and then you allot your expenses. You don't let your expenses exceed your income. Because what you're really saying is that your income, which we understand, is what God's provision is in our life. God, what you've given me is not enough. I'm not going to live under the banner of your provision for my life. I'm going to go outside of it. And there's enormous pain when that happens. And, and you know it. Maybe you know it in your own life or you know it in the lives of family who are in the middle of it right now. It doesn't take a lot of brains to fix it, but it takes a lot of work. Financially speaking, I read this this week. There, there are two categories of people. Everybody is either a nerd or a hippie. Right? Financial nerds, they, they love the numbers, Jack. He's a, Jack is my favorite financial nerd. We're in a small group together on Thursday nights. They love to be in control of stuff. But if you're a financial hippie, you just like to go with the flow, right? You don't like the plans. You just want to be free. Many marriages consist of, guess what? One nerd and one hippie. That's part of why in marriages the number one source of conflict is, guess what? Money. Money. Part of the reason why wise financial management makes such a difference is that nothing puts a strain on relationships quite like financial distress. Nobody wants that. God doesn't want that. Marriages end over that. If in your life, if in your marriage, you're feeling that, then let me suggest that particularly hippies, I am one, you wouldn't know it from the appearance, but every once in a while you need to nerd up. You need to nerd up and do the hard work. And as you do that, there are great tools available. There's great tools out there. There's great tools in here as a church. One of the great tools that we're investing in is called CAP, Christians Against Poverty, which provides workshops and and free tools available to assist any home in budgeting. They're tremendous tools. They're all available online. They're all free in coaching. They can make sense. They're, they're grounded in, in practical wisdom. They're grounded in biblical wisdom. It's a tested, believable, workable. It's a fantastic program. But you don't even need to go quite that high tech if you don't want to. We love it. We use it in our homes, but, but you don't have to. You can do it the old school way, the, my grandparents' way where all the money that came in went into envelopes and every envelope had a name. And when the envelope was empty, you were done unless you're willing to take it out of another envelope. (laughs) How are you doing on the budget deal? That's that's the first of the financial signs. Am I living within a budget? Do I know what my income is? Do I track my expenses? Am I living within the realm of God's provision for my life? And while you're rating yourself, I'll ask you to place a mark there. Let me give you one of the best definitions of a budget that I know of. It comes from a man named John Maxwell. He says, a budget is telling your money where to go instead of wondering where it went. How are you doing? Here's the second of the signs, freedom from debt. Oh, my goodness. And this one is so huge, isn't it? Debt is such a crusher. And again, I, I get it. Some of you are, are financially, you're, you're very sophisticated and you know that, that, yes, debt can actually be a great tool. You can use debt as a way of leveraging resources to create income. And, and that's true. 
But let me ask, for the most part, when it comes to debt, how is that really working for you? Is it really a leveraging tool that has opened up all these great doors for you? Because I need to say that that both practical wisdom and biblical wisdom cluster around this same idea that there's very little that is good or healthy about indebtedness. Proverbs 22, verse 7. You know this verse, some of you. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrow is, guess what? A slave to the lender. Do you feel that? Those of you who have dealt with indebtedness, Feel that sense of burden and bondage? Boy, I expect in any room there'd be a whole lot of people that can identify either in the past or the present with what that feels like. You're in over your head, there's guilt, there's shame, there's self reproach, there's hiding. You go into avoidance mode. You just you don't want to think about it. Not only makes it worse. You got one credit card that's maxed out and you can't live off of it anymore. So you get another one to live off for a while or to pay off the first one. And then you start to get the messages and the phone calls and and you just feel like you're drowning. You live under a cloud. And and, and folks, we, we live in a culture that's always going to encourage us to go there. They'll encourage us with the two big words around money in our day. Words are more and now. Right? You're bombarded with messages again and again that say the secret to joy, to contentment, is just something more. We're flooded with stories and persuasions and advertising that say you're not content right now. You can be more content. And, and contentment is only one purchase away. And so these products, I mean, a myriad of them come into our life and they just say the same thing. Use me. Try me, eat me, drink me, uh, try me on, rub me in your hair, whatever it is. Use me and, and you'll be content. But somewhere between more and contentment is this vast chasm. And you never quite get across. Let me illustrate. Most of you know the answer to this. Who's more content? The man with $10 million dollars. Or the man with ten children? You know the answer to that? Ten children? Do you know why? Because the man with ten children will never want more. <laughs> Don't. Now careful. So, some of you can't laugh because your kids are here. The Apostle Paul has this really fabulous statement about contentment. He's writing to his young friend, Timothy. Paul says, this is 1 Timothy 6. He says, Timothy, remember this. Godliness and contentment are a great gain. Because we brought nothing into the world. And guess what? We take nothing out. To, to know God, to, to love God, to be content is such a good thing. But it's a learned skill. And it's a skill that you're going to have to learn against the current of our culture. There's a monastery that uh, I was reading about, a spiritual community, very Spartan. Many, many of these communities are. 
They practice hospitality. They've opened themselves up as a retreat center and people come and, and they welcome guests to their rooms. Again, furnished very, very modestly. And, and then they'll say to them, if you want anything at all, just let me know. And I'll tell you how you can get by without it. Uh, two roads to contentment. One is more and the other is gratitude. The Bible says the first road is a sucker's game. And yet we live in a culture that is going to drive us down the other one. I have to have more. I have to get more. I have to get it as soon as possible. I have to get it today. And there's all these institutions that have made themselves incredibly wealthy on the idea that not just can you have more, but you can have it today. And you know they're saying their slogan, right? Buy now pay later. Right. 90 days. Same as cash. (laughs) Rubbish. Do you know what's the same as cash? Cash is the same as cash. Yeah. Now, what's really interesting, and you know these kind of stats too, people who do that, buy now, pay later. 88% of the time, nine times out of 10, when it comes time to pay later, they can't. And then the extortion level interest rates settle in. That's why the businesses that do this are so prominent. They're not run by dummies. In Canada, we live under, get this, $585 billion of credit card debt. That's not house debt. It's not car debt. Just credit card debt. More than half a trillion dollars. Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Rome. That's the financial powerhouse of the ancient world. Listen to what he says. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except this. This is the one continuing debt of your life. To love one another. The love debt. Owe that one. Owe nothing else. Because everything else is slavery. I want to say a word. Maybe if there's somebody in the room, this isn't theoretical for you. It's painful, it's real, you're in the middle of it, your kids are in the middle of it, whatever it is. I, I want to give you a word of encouragement because there's a way out. It's overwhelming, you don't want to think about it, I know, but through the shame, on the other side, there's, there's a way through. A little story, but about a strategy for getting out of debt. It's by a woman named Anne Lamott. Her book was titled Bird by Bird. And that's the title of the analogy. It's, it's a true story, an episode in her brother's life. She remembered a time when he was younger, when he had this large term assignment, an end of term paper. He was writing on birds and he put it off and he put it off and he put it off until it was the day before it was due. And there he is sitting at a table surrounded by books on birds, articles on birds, pictures of birds and surrounded by all of this stuff. He's just, he's overwhelmed and he starts to weep. And his father comes and places his arm around the boy and says, it's okay, son. Just take it one bird at a time, bird by bird. It's the same thing with debt. Go debt by debt. Try this. I mean, this is practical wisdom. It's been taught by generations of teachers. It's being taught still today. Make a list of all of your debts. You can go home and do it now. 
rank them from the smallest to the largest. Start with the smallest. Throw all your energies into paying that off. Minimum payments everywhere else. Pay that one off. And then it's gone and you'll feel good. Because you got rid of one. At last, one last envelope arriving in your mailbox. One last email in your inbox. And then you take what you're throwing at that and you throw it at the next one on the list. And you slay that one. And you move through the the list and you have this idea that it's not just you. That it's you and God because He does not want you to live under the burden of this. That His provision for your life was there as a blessing. We can do it and we can do it together. And, and as you're doing that, you're living this commitment. Says, I want to be, I want to be free of it. To do that, one of the things you might need to do, and we teach this in CAP, Christians Against Poverty. We run the workshops. We run them here a few times a year. We'll run them again. You may need to do a plastectomy. You know that plastectomy? Guess what that is? That's where you take your plastic out of your wallet and you slice it in half. You say, well, no, 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 I need that. How can you get along without credit? Well, credit got you in the trouble in the first place. And, and here's why. It's not just that the credit gives us access to money that we might not spend otherwise. It changes the way that we spend. We know this. Nobody knows it more than credit card companies who are incentivizing every credit card out there with options to get you to use it. And here's why. You spend more. A study done just very recently at McDonald's of all places. They looked at how people ordered. Turns out, even at McDonald's, if you use a credit card to pay for a meal, you will spend on average 47% more than those who pay cash. There's just something about the way that our brains are wired that registers the use of cash in a way that's different than plastic. Okay, enough of that. Enough. Uh, have a look at the scale. Be honest. Um, place a mark. And then let's move to the third of the vital signs. Wise savings. Now again, the Bible talks about this in such a concrete way, just to try and drive it home. Here's an idea from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 20. The wise store up choice food and olive oil. Fools just gulp theirs all down. Again, think of the world. They're living in an agricultural economy. Food, crops, olive oil. These are the resources. This is the money of the day. Wise people save Fools don't. The Wall Street Journal says that in our days, 70% of people live paycheck to paycheck. And I know that in many cases, there are systemic problems that cause that. And that poverty is a real issue. And I don't mean to make light of that, but 70%, 7 out of 10 people, if they missed a a paycheck, it, it would be a disaster for them. Think about the weight of that. In your life. I knew a guy. He wasn't a close family friend. But, but I knew his boss really well. He, he'd worked in automotive sales for, well, for 20 years. And for 20 years, he was the leading salesman at his dealership. He made a good living. He, he lived in a beautiful home. It was in South Oakville. He drove great cars. Went on luxurious vacations. He did all of this, it turns out, by leveraging his already considerable income and borrowing more. And then one day, the market corrected. 
That's a great word, isn't it? Corrected? Corrected? We don't use that in other areas of our lives. My, my waist is correcting. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> anyway, the market corrected. He was decimated. He lost everything. He lost the house. He lost the car. lost the lifestyle. In the end, he lost his marriage. Again, it's, it's put in really colorful language in the book of Proverbs because it's important. Proverbs 27. Have a look. Proverbs 27, verse 23. Be sure that you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. Your riches will not endure forever. I mean, it, it couldn't be clear. Be sure that you know. Give attention to this. Be sure that you know how much you've set aside for an emergency. For the unexpected, because the one thing that you can expect is the unexpected is going to happen. Be sure you know how much is in your retirement fund. Be sure how much you're setting aside for your children. Be sure you know. Reminds me of this key verse in the Bible. Have a brain, saith the Lord. No, it's not in there, but it should be. First retirement, chapter 40, verse 1. It's, it's not in there. Don't look for it. Pay careful attention, though. How are you doing on your savings side? I mean, this is between you and God, I realize. But honestly, how, how are you going to grade out on that side? And while you're doing the rating, one more little piece of wisdom on the savings front. Again, this comes from Proverbs. Proverbs 13, verse 22. A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. The goal in life is not to end with zero, to, to consume everything that you've earned. Have you thought about the investment that you will make in the next generation? A really basic implication here is when it comes to writing a will and thinking about your estate. And why are we mentioning it in a sermon? I, I don't know, except this... of all Canadians don't have one. And one of the times that the church has the greatest responsibility and greatest privilege to come alongside families is when they're grieving the loss of a loved one. And you know how hard that is, how agonizing the sorrow. How much more is it compounded when your family who you love have to take care of your financial mess because you didn't clean it up while you were alive? A will is a way of caring for your family. A will is a way of providing, investing in causes that matter, that will outlive you. It's part of saving. It's part of loving. You ask people, why don't you write a will? I said, I just, yeah, I don't want to think about dying. Well, how about this? Here's the good news. You're so likely to die that the chances are pretty good that if you write a will, it's going to get used. Okay? Okay, enough. Let's grade yourself out. Let's let's move to the last of the indicators. Generous giving. Generous giving. A life that is open-handed and and wise stewardship. And here's, here's the deal. Here's why I wanted to end on this point. The most important reason why you manage your money well is this. It's not your money. It's not your money. You didn't bring it into the world. You don't get to take it out. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 24. You're a steward. You're a steward. 
you're not a permanent owner. It's, it's not ours. It turns out that the vital sign that matters most on the financial dashboard is this one. is generosity. God talks about this all the time throughout the Bible. Here's an example from the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, have a look at Malachi chapter 3. Malachi 3 verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Uh, an interesting word. You'll never hear this word outside of the church. The word tithe or tithing. But this is a practice that is unique to the people of God in the Old Testament. Unique to Israel. They would take 10% of all of their resources as an expression of their trust and their gratitude. They would give it back to God. And as they were doing it, they were using that to provide for all kinds of needs, but they were also encouraging this culture of generosity. No other culture that we know of in the ancient world did this. Israel did it. God said, trust me in this. In fact, read on. It says, bring the whole tithe so that there can be food in my house for my people. You can test me in this, he says. I know of no other place in In Scripture, where God commands people to test Him, usually we're told the opposite, right? Do not test the Lord your God. But here, it's as if He knows how much we want to clutch and hold. That He says, I dare you. I dare you. You can test me in this and see. Read on. This is beautiful. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, there will not be enough room to store it. How are you doing with this one? Are you trusting God with a tithe? That's a lot. Are you asking God to help you build a generous heart? This business of giving is so important to God. One of the interesting ways that you can gauge that is by looking at how it's talked about in the Bible. By looking at key words that are used, key themes. It's kind of interesting. Let, Let me show you what I mean. Belief, faith. Faith, you would agree, is a key concept in Scripture? The word belief or the word faith is used in Scripture 272 times. It's a lot. How about prayer? I mean, one of the key indicators of a vital relationship with God, the ability to communicate. The word prayer is used in Scripture 371 times. Love, obviously huge. The defining attribute of God, 741 times. It's huge. Fear not. That's a big deal, particularly in the Old Testament. Honor the awesomeness of God 365 times. How about the word give? 2,162 times. Give. Arguably the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he did what? He gave the best that he had. Giving is a heart deal. It's not intended by God to be a weight, a shackle, an obligation. It's intended as something that combats a grudging spirit and leads to joy. That's why Paul said in his most famous teaching on the, on the subject of generosity, he said, don't give reluctantly. Don't give out of compulsion. God loves a what? Cheerful giver. Guess what the word is there? Hilario. What does that sound like? Hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. They're not bows with a clown. Hilarious, filled with joy. You're meant to experience joy in doing this. If you, if you keep giving, eventually you get there and you wonder, 
How did I live any other way? But we do. And people still do. And maybe you wonder, well, what does God think about people that just remain trapped in that bubble of selfishness and indebtedness and and just poor management and they're sinking? I want you to listen, and these are hard words, to what the writer of the book of James, what he says about people who are living in a world where there's so much need, and yet in the face of that, they live such selfish lives. Here's what he says, James chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days, and now look. The wages you failed to pay, the co-workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence, and you've fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. Any questions on that passage? Anything not real clear about that? The Bible is really terribly direct on this subject. And it's hard because this is not a message you're going to hear anywhere from our culture. You're not going to hear it from the lords of more and the lords of now. But from Jesus, the Scripture says, even though He was rich, became poor for our sakes. From Jesus, you're going to hear all about it. How are you doing on these gauges? Living on a budget, living free from debt, getting wise about saving. The generosity gauge. I'm telling you, and I make no apologies for this, that when you invite God into your financial life, when you surrender that to God, you get to go on a spiritual adventure that nothing else can replace. I mean, what a, what a cool thing it is. To be part of a community of people here who are so committed to following Jesus in a culture that says more, 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 and now, 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 to be part of a group that says yours, yours, here. The last word. We're a quarter of the way into our fiscal year. In the first quarter, we got knocked around a little bit, didn't we? I mean, our furnace went down, our basement gave out, we needed heat, we didn't need all the water, so we took care of that stuff. But we got a gap. It'd be really cool to catch up on the gap before summer comes. You give in ways that are faithful, you, you give in ways that are sacrificial. And boy, I'm, I'm just so grateful to be a part of what God is doing here. We are facing open doors in the future, some of which we have never seen before. And we're, and we're excited. Some of those plans we're rolling out, some we will yet to roll out. And just we see so much out in front of us. Your giving, your generosity, your, your faithfulness. It's the only thing that makes it possible. I guess I just wanted to say thank you. We're excited about tomorrow.
We're thankful for today. We're thankful for you. We pray for you. In fact, let's do that now. Will you pray with me right now? God, we bring now our whole hearts to you. Our whole lives to you, including our financial lives. We acknowledge, God, that this money thing is, sometimes it's way beyond us. There's way more power in it than there is in us. We get all heated up over it. and We think it's going to make us happy. We think it'll bring us security. It gives us our identity. And then God, in, in moments, the reality comes crashing in. Maybe it's failure. Maybe it's heartbreak. Maybe it's life and death. And then we remember money is not God money doesn't last money didn't die on a cross for us only you so God right now would you bring the love and the care the tenderness hope comfort whatever it needs to be bring those things that money and success and possessions can never bring would you bring Lord the freedom and the love and the mercy that we need thank you for all that you give to us. Help us to give the same generosity, the same joy, the same hilarity that you do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.